We interrupt our program to bring you this important message. Welcome to another episode of Medicalization, a podcast miniseries that dives into some of the most peculiar and fascinating stories of the history of medicine. Some figures made it their mission to etch their names into history. Others found themselves thrust into it. Either way, their contributions have made medicine what it is today. I'm your host, Wafiq Sedhome. And I'm your host, Jessica Sedhome. In today's episode, we look at an extremely rare disease and the courageous little boy that it held captive. His real-life experiment pushed the limits of medical ethics as the entire nation watched and waited. This is the story of David Vetter. The real-life bubble boy. Mrs. Vetter, I have the results of your tests. Thank God. I've been a wreck all week to tell you the truth. I can't stop thinking about it. My poor baby. We're going to try to do everything we can to make sure what happened to your first child doesn't happen again. Oh, please, Doc. Thanks so much. Please, please tell me you have good news. My baby gonna be alright? Well, Mrs. Vetter... There's really no easy way to tell you this. Oh, God! (laughs) Based on the results of your pregnancy screening, I'm so sorry to say that your baby will be born with the same ailment that took your son. I cannot express the sadness I feel for you and your husband. No, God, please! I can't take it! I can't lose him! Not again! Not again! You may not have to. I have conjured up a plan that... Might just be the solution we're looking for. Oh, please, I'd do anything. It's the early 1970s. The Children's Hospital in Houston, Texas, is buzzing with more tension and more excitement than usual. Today will be unlike any other day that the medical staff has ever seen. Within these walls, Carol Ann Vetter is scheduled for a C-section. Unlike the thousands of C-sections that happen every day, this one could not have had higher stakes. This would have to be one of the most sterile, germ-free operations ever performed. For three days, three connected operating rooms had been quarantined, scrubbed, disinfected, and scrubbed again from top to bottom. Medical staff were checked head to toe for any illness that could be contagious. The staff devised a system of communication that minimized mouth and body movement because any piece of dust could mean the end for the child in Carol's womb. As she is wheeled down to the operating room, doctors and nurses surround her, still and silent. Her abdomen was scrubbed for 10 minutes to ensure that every last microbe was eradicated. She felt the anesthesia creep into her conscience and take her away. The scalpel pierced her sterile skin. 
was a boy. David Philip Vetter. Born September 21st, 1971. The first 20 seconds of his life were much like any newborn. Like any first breath. A natural entrance to the world and its wonders. But little did David know that this would be the only exposure he would have to the outside world for the next 12 years. After ensuring the baby was breathing well, the doctors grabbed him and placed him in an isolation chamber almost immediately. Sterilized holy water had been prepared, and he was christened from within the confines of his new home, a tiny 3 by 5 foot enclosure that could only truly be described as a cage. And within this cage, a great bubble boy experiment was officially underway. Okay, enough with the suspense. What's going on? Well, David has a rare condition known as severe combined immunodeficiency, also known as SCID. This left his body defenseless against any bacteria, virus, or fungus. A simple cold could be his death sentence. His team of doctors had anticipated this as a possibility. His parents had a healthy daughter and another son, also by the name of David, who passed away at seven months from this disease. Wanting another child, they were counseled by the pediatrics team at Houston Children's Hospital. The pediatric immunologist for the family, Dr. Raphael Wilson, had told the parents that if they had a girl, she would be unaffected. But if they had a boy, he would have a 50% chance of having this rare genetic condition, SCID. If the baby did indeed turn out to have skid, Dr. Wilson's rather unorthodox plan was to immediately place the child in a bubble-type enclosure, keeping him free from those oh-so-deadly pathogens. Dr. Wilson did have a long-term solution. His Hail Mary was a bone marrow transplant for David. It was precarious because it was still a new procedure, wrought with issues and complications. If successful, however... The treatment would be theoretically curative. The bone marrow transplant could replace the deficient immune cells with healthy ones, but only if the donor was a perfect match. The hope was that his sister Catherine would provide the marrow, and David could be cured and released from the bubble shortly thereafter. However, this was a huge assumption. Exactly. The chances of a close relative having perfect compatibility was only 25%. And if he sought a donor among the general population, it was one in hundreds of thousands. So, the odds were surely stacked against David. But the alternative? Exposure and nearly certain death. A slim chance was better than none at all. The isolation chamber, albeit small, was equipped with all the essentials for David's survival. Plastic walls all around, a ventilation system that provided constant purified air, outside materials that were needed in the bubble were first sterilized in paracetic acid, and then superheated to kill any germs before they were shuttled through a system of air tubes. His only physical touch came in the form of neoprene gloves dispersed throughout his chamber. Everybody knew this was no way for a child to live, 
It was unjust for a mother to be so removed from her newborn baby, but they kept telling themselves that it was only temporary, that it would not last. Then came the devastating news. His sister Catherine was not a perfect match. The cure that was on the horizon was snuffed out almost instantaneously. He would have to wait for a stranger's blood, and that could take years. It could never happen at all. With this sobering news, the bubble was quickly becoming David's home. And as David grew, his story became a nationwide phenomenon. His smiling and playing through the bubble captivated the hearts and minds of the public as they eagerly awaited the next development. One local newspaper even named him the Miracle of Houston. After several months, a sterile chamber was built in his parents' home to allow for several weeks' stints, but little changed over the first few years of his life. He remained in the bubble, with his only portal to the outside world being what he saw on television or through books. His mind, just as much as his body, was hindered from reality. At the age of five, he began seeing child psychologists and play therapists. His psyche was clearly different from that of any other young boy. David had become quiet, oftentimes refusing to speak to nurses and staring off into the distance. As he became aware of his surroundings and began developing his personality, he started to understand how different his life was from others. He often felt most connected to death in the stories that he heard or saw on the television. He suffered from recurrent nightmares and described them in detail to his psychiatrists. One of the recurring themes involved David fighting epic battles against an army of germs. He would succeed in quelling the small defenders, but could never defeat the almighty king. (laughs) The fear instilled in him of the microscopic beasts were too much for him to handle. Nurses would walk into his room and see him rocking in place, muttering, One, two, three... Four, I can't take this anymore. His caretakers grew increasingly worried that David was psychologically deteriorating from a lack of human contact. Many tasked with caring for him felt almost equally trapped by the situation, oftentimes doubtful that anything will improve, and wondering if this treatment was truly worth all the pain. Dr. Wilson, feeling endlessly troubled by David's circumstances, conjured up a plan to give David some of his freedom back. He consulted the National Aeronautics and Space Administration, NASA, to design a spacesuit that David could use to explore the outside world, while still being protected from its dangers. After two years of development, the suit was ready. David was now six years old and was hesitant to don the outfit, but after much convincing, he eventually gave it a shot. His first moments were much like an explorer discovering a new planet. The water spewing from the faucet mesmerized him. The trees with their twisted branches and green leaves gave him pause. The outside world was tangible for the first time ever. He walked around, playing with his dog and his family. It seemed to be a welcome moment in the face of a series of disappointments. His mother and his sister were ecstatic. This little boy could finally be a little boy. All seemed well, for a moment. 
but those hesitations never really left David. And after only a mere seven walks, he refused to enter the suit ever again. And so David sat in his bubble, awaiting his fate. Life remained calm until 1981. A research team out of Boston had some potentially life-changing news for David. They had discovered a groundbreaking method of bone marrow transplantation that did not require a perfect match. On October 21st, 1983, the procedure commenced. Two ounces of his sister's blood were transfused into the bone marrow. He waited in his chamber to see what would happen, hoping that new healthy cells would overtake the fragile ones, giving David a chance at a normal life. On the eve of 1984, the inching progress came to a screeching halt. David had spiked a fever. His temperature was reaching 105 degrees Fahrenheit, dangerously high levels, especially for him. A mystery to the doctors, his condition was all too quickly destroying him from the inside out. Internal bleeding was imminent. With his body deteriorating by the day, the doctors knew that one thing was absolutely certain to try and at least save him. He needed to be removed from his plastic home. With his first unfiltered breath in over a decade, he was quickly rushed to an open hospital room. Passing through the hallways, he reveled in the beautifully simple. The sun rays beaming through the hospital window revealed tiny dust particles, which David called minute snowflakes. His excitement at seeing them seemed so ironic, considering these particles represented everything he was supposed to fear. The end was very near, and on February 22nd, 1984, two weeks after he left the bubble, he slipped into a coma from which he would never return. His mother, having never touched her own son before, stroked the back of his head for the first and last time. The cause of David's death would only be revealed after an autopsy was performed. In his blood, there were... Among unusual-looking blood cells, vast quantities of Epstein-Barr virus, or EBV. EBV is so common that it exists in most people. It is usually harmless because our immune system fights it off fairly easily. David's condition made his immune system so weak that this virus could populate easily. Initially, it manifested itself as infectious mononucleosis or, in layman's terms, mono. But without the checks and balances of a normal immune system, this triggered a deadly cancer of the lymph cells within a few short weeks. This proliferation, known as Burkitt's lymphoma, is what ultimately killed David. But where did the virus come from to begin with? For a boy who kept himself germ-free and isolated his entire life, there was only one place it could have come from, the bone marrow transplant of his sister. Her blood, unbeknownst to all, would carry with it a virus that compromised the very immune system it hoped to restore. I think it's that time, Jesse. Uh-oh. It's time to learn the science behind some of our favorite stories. Off to the Synaptic Center.
Severe Combined Immunodeficiency, or SCID, is a rare genetic disorder. And for those non-science people out there, basic genetics dictates that every person gets two copies of each gene, one from their mom and one set from their dad, to make up a total of 46 chromosomes. Two of those chromosomes determine the sex of the child, XY for boys, XX for girls. This is pretty basic stuff if everything goes right. But if there's a defect on the X chromosome, it's especially concerning for males because they don't have another one. So for people with X chromosome mutations, the one just isn't enough. There's no compensatory mechanism. So the boys often present with diseases while the girls only carry the mutation and end up propagating it to males in the future. Skid what David had, is X-linked in its most common form. In other words, it's carried on the X chromosome and usually affects males. SCID isn't an autoimmune disorder like AIDS, because to have an autoimmune disorder, the body has to attack itself. People with SCID don't have an immune system really to begin with. So how can that happen? Well, there has to be a mutation somewhere in the gene that messes up the basic function of the immune system altogether. In David's case, a gamma common chain protein, a component of white blood cells, was left entirely non-existent because that one gene was simply deleted. Our immune system can be subdivided into two forms. The first is innate immunity. This is the system, the immune system, that you're born with. Things like blood clotting, inflammatory responses, mucus that grabs bacteria as you breathe in, and your entire skin? David had all these things. He had an innate immune system. What he didn't have was the second part of your immune system, the adaptive immune system. This is the part that responds to bacteria and viruses and the microbes all around us every day. Your body has a built-in defense mechanism that recruits cells to recognize foreign materials, which we call antigens. In response, white blood cells produce antibodies to perfectly match the antigens, which can help fend off future infections. It's why we don't usually get the same cold twice. It's how we literally build immunity. Here's where we get scientific. Our adaptive immune system is made up of a few different cells mostly T lymphocytes and B lymphocytes. These are the second line of defense once a pathogen somehow slips past your body. The B lymphocytes in particular are important because they recruit and literally tag the foreign bodies for destruction. They're also the ones that remember something as bad to begin with, so that next time they can kill the pathogen more quickly and more efficiently. T lymphocytes are more like the mercenaries. Killer T cells do exactly what you think. They actually destroy the bacteria by consuming it. T helper cells also do what you think. They just help. They're like mercenary cheerleaders. Sure. They help recruit more killer T-cells by releasing chemicals that attract further proliferation. And so David didn't have 
any of these cells. The B cells, the T helper cells, the T killer cells. This meant that anything that did slip past the innate immune system could proliferate freely, completely uncontrolled. Exactly. Now let's uh, take a look at the proposed treatment for David, which is uh, was bone marrow transplant. It's deserving of recognition in and of itself. Let's walk through the process by which most bone marrow transplants occur. B and T lymphocytes actually originate from the bone marrow, so you need to remove healthy bone marrow from a suitable donor. From there, the recipient of the transplant receives medication that's designed to obliterate their current unhealthy marrow. This gives a quote-unquote clean slate for the new donor marrow. Next, the new marrow is given to the patient, and they are carefully monitored while new blood cells implant and grow. And doctors need to be super careful to monitor the patient's immune system during that period, when the old marrow is completely wiped out and the new bone marrow hasn't quite worked yet. Because during that time period, they're essentially without an immune system. Any changes to their blood could lead to spontaneous bleeding, because they just can't clot. And any exposure to pathogens could lead to deadly infection. And any exposure to pathogens could lead to deadly infection. If all works well, the new marrow, with its healthy cells, proliferate B and T cells all on their own, just like they should have to begin with. The field of hematology-oncology, which deals with cancers and diseases of the blood, uses bone marrow transplants to treat a host of cancers and different blood conditions. Bone marrow transplantation has shown amazing efficacy and versatility in ways that just couldn't have been imagined a few years ago. With David's death, the Great Bubble Boy experiment came to a tragic end. From that point on, placement in a sterile chamber was not indicated for treatment of skid. Currently, a combination of newborn screening and improved bone marrow transplantation has led to pretty remarkable results. Approximately 90% of newborn screening programs have a way of identifying skid-susceptible patients within their first month of life, enabling them to pursue appropriate treatment. Although patients may suffer from infection, graft rejection, and a host of post-operative complications following a bone marrow transplant, the future is relatively bright. Generally speaking, infants transplanted before three and a half months of age have improved outcomes and lower infection rates. Several reports looking at long-term outcomes from bone marrow transplants in these patients have shown a survival rate of over 90%. Although still not curable in all cases, skid is no longer the death sentence it was a mere 40 years ago. David's story is testament to the miracles and the ills of a medical system that strives to make the lives of its patients the best that it can be. And even though David lost his life in the pursuit of a cure, thousands of others have him to thank for a more promising tomorrow.
Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Medicalization. Please make sure to follow us on iTunes and or SoundCloud and give us a review. You don't have to give us a review. But sharing with your friends and writing a review are the best ways to help us out. We'll see you next time for another look into the medical history vault with Jess and Wafiq. Until then, toodaloo! We'd like to thank Carrie Nelson for her role as Carol Ann Vetter. Well, Ms. Vetter, there's really no easy way to tell you this. I'm drunk. <laughs> That's me brother. No snogging me brother. And we'd say, medicine. Yeah, we can do that. You want to do that? We can do that. We can do that. Yeah. Now, back to our show.